Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law was, is not laid down for, for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. The Puritan preacher William Secker once wrote, The law by which God rules us is as dear to him as the gospel by which he saves us. So as we approach the text this morning, we find that Paul is going to be explaining to us the purpose of the law. But before we dive into that, I think we need to ask ourselves an important question. What is the law of God? And what does it have to do with the Christian life and faith? I believe that among the things that Christians struggle in our postmodern context to understand is the objective and unchangeable law of God. In fact, if, if you were to ask most Christians what the law is and what the law is for and, what, and, and how the law actually works and what law applies to us today, you're going to get a wide variety of answers and opinions. And the reason for that is because theologically, we just as a culture just don't know enough about the law of God. We certainly don't know enough about Him at times, much less His law. That's why you will hear people say things like, well, I don't have to do that. I'm under grace, not under the law. How many times have you heard that? Right? How many times have you said that? I have. Or, or the part of the Bible, you know, that part of the Bible doesn't matter anymore because that's the Old Testament. It's not relevant anymore because we have the New Testament. In fact, there's a famous pastor who said we need to, as Christians, unhitch our theology from the Old Testament law. Right? Or how about other Christians who criticize other Christians for not following the law? Right? Well, you're not really a Christian because you don't worship, you know, because you worship on Sunday rather than the Sabbath, which is Saturday. Well, you, you're not really that much of a Christian if you're not tithing, right? You, you really don't love God if you're not going to church every time the doors are open. The truth is, this is yet another area in which Christians, as individuals and as a church, we are theologically anemic. We just don't understand the law of God and the purpose of His law. I think that's why so many Christians and churches end up on opposite ends of the spectrum. You see, on one end of the spectrum, what you're going to have is people who don't think that the law has anything to do with Christian faith at all. 
They don't believe that the law is relevant to Christians anymore. Again, they'll say, I'm under grace, not under the law. And that means I don't have to obey that command of God. That means I don't have to, to tithe at church. That means I don't have to go and be together with the body of Christ. That means I don't have to, to do what you say. That means I don't have to give up my, my lifestyle. I don't have to change and repent of my sexual sin. I'm under grace, not the law. I mean, love is love, right? And God's okay with everything now, right? If I don't repent of that, I'm okay. If I don't, if I, I don't have to pray, I don't have to read my Bible, I don't have to conform to the word, I'm, I'm under grace, not the law. If I put my faith in Jesus, the law doesn't matter. That attitude is what we call antinomianism. Antinomianism, which is a fancy theological word made of, of two separate words that literally means no law. That's what it means. This is a common attitude found in evangelical churches across our country, particularly non-denominational churches, and in a number of Baptist churches that preach a gospel of easy believism. And what I mean by that is this idea that if you make some emotional profession of faith, then you are saved no matter what happens and no matter what your life looks like. And because you're under grace, not the law, you just invite Jesus into your heart, and now you have your fire insurance, right? Regardless of the fruit that you bear in your life. This antinomianism, by the way, is an egregious error in the American church. And it's, by the way, it's been around since the very beginning. Paul actually has to address that also. But that's one end of the spectrum. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we find those people who think that being a Christian is about being conformed to this code of rules. They believe that if you're a Christian, that you have to do certain things and not do certain things, and you better make sure you do that right or you don't because you're going to lose your way into heaven. In the early church, the, the legalists were telling the, uh, the Gentile Christians that they had to become Jewish and obey the law in order to be saved. Paul addresses that in Galatians. In more modern times, legalism has been, has been expressed in things like dress codes for church members. Some churches forbid watching movies or even listening to secular music. This is a very common attitude amongst the independent fundamentalist Baptist movement. And some use the doctrine of separation to create a list of rules that Christians must live by to prove that they are saved. I think we've all kind of bumped our heads against that a couple times. Some churches will say you're not born again if you use tobacco or if you drink alcohol, even though you can't make that stick from the Scriptures. Some churches will, will preach that you need to be baptized to be saved. Some will say, like the Seventh-day Adventists, that you have to keep the Sabbath and worship only on Saturday and not Sunday to be saved. The nature of legalism is to take some law or all of the law or some man-made set of rules and then add them to the gospel as a test of faith. And we see a lot of this today, actually. There's actually new forms of legalism that are popping up around us, like the legalism that's rooted in the greatest commandment. Today, some people who call themselves Christians use the greatest commandment, which, by the way, I don't know if you know that, is, is to, love, you know, to love God and love others. That is actually a summary of the law, right? 
but they use it in order to tell other Christians how they ought to live their lives. Over and over again, people are pulling out this scripture, love your neighbor out of context, and they're wielding it like a club to bludgeon their, their brothers and sisters in Christ into submission. When churches began to, to see the effects of the lockdown that it's having on people emotionally and spiritually, when they decided to start opening again, right, people would then immediately use this scripture, what about loving your neighbor? Right, when, pe- when churches said that, hey, you know what we're going to do is we're not going to force people not to sing because we're supposed to sing. And when churches said we're not going like, to set artificial limits to the gathering of God's people and we're not going to make people act like little kids and tell them what to do, what was the cry that came from all corners of the world? What about loving your neighbor? As if loving your neighbor is about one set of neighbors who have a particular set of opinions. I had someone during an interaction this week online, we're talking about opening churches, and they said that, that churches that opened and, and that don't follow the, the, the mandates for numbers and, and masks, that those churches are led by cult leaders, and they're not true churches. And I said, uh, I said how, do you, how do you get there? I mean, I don't understand how you feel that way. Well, because the Bible says, love God and love your neighbor. And if you don't do what the health department says to do, then you don't love your neighbor. That means you don't love God. That means you're a false church. Woo, okay. That's a big leap, but the scary part of that is, is there are a lot of people who profess to be Christians who have that same opinion and mentality. If you don't see things the way they see things from their perspective, then you're wrong. That's just where we are. Right? It doesn't matter, right? Who cares that you have a different opinion about the same data? There's something wrong with you if you don't see it their way. That's legalism. Another new form of legalism that's more insidious than that is, the, is critical race theory and intersectionality, or codenamed today, the social justice movement. These are Marxist ideas that have been used to influence the church and also to separate God's people into groups that don't belong. We're, we're supposed to be one in Christ, one in Christ, right? But what, what's happening now is big churches around, all around are saying, if you're white, then the only hope that you have to being saved is you need to confess right now that you're a racist, even though you don't know that you're a racist. And that if you don't repent of that racism and you don't repent of the racism of your grandma and your grandpa and them before them, then you're not really a true Christian and you're not loving your neighbor. Right? And they said that there can't be any real reconciliation in the church until we do that, never mind what the gospel says. Again, I'll take you back to Galatians and even Ephesians where it said that Jesus tore down the dividing wall and made one man. And so again, it's just legalism. And by the way, I want you to know, this is nothing new. It's, it's as old as a church. And again, it's another egregious error. And what we need to realize is both legalism and antinomianism are errors in the church that are really in the same problem, a lack of understanding of God's law. Neither one of them are correct. Neither one of them are biblical. And both need to be repented of and rejected outright. The truth is we're not saved by conforming to a set of rules. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is it, is a gift of God, not of works. But on the other hand, God, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that He's prepared beforehand for us to do. 
We're not saved so we can spend the rest of our life in disobedience to God's law. Obedience is the natural byproduct of salvation. Both ends of the spectrum are serious errors in the Christian faith. And so there must be something we need to know then. And there is. The scripture actually has a lot to say about this if we'll let it speak for itself. And with that, it's my aim to take this text we have before you, right, and, and share that with you. And I want you to know, okay, all the way up until about Friday, I was thinking, I'm going to get all the way through this text in one sermon. It's not going to happen, okay? There's just, there's way too much here. And I get reminded often enough how long I go anyway, so... So what we're going to do is we're going to take this and we're going to break this down into two parts, all right? And what you need to understand is you're going to learn a lot today, but you need to hear both of these messages to really get your head wrapped around where Paul's going here. You need to listen to this week's message and next week's message. Otherwise, you're going to miss big chunks, okay? In fact, I'm going to struggle to actually cover everything that needs to be covered in two messages, but I don't want to take six years to get through 1 Timothy, so we're going to do it in two parts. So again, you're going to need to listen to both of these. But with that being said, we're going to take a really close look at this text and see what the scriptures have to offer for guidance when it comes to this understanding of the law. Because the Bible clearly explains what the law is, what the purpose of it is, who it's for. And it explains how to use the law in a way that relates to the Christian life. Now, before we just jump headlong into the text, let me just remind you where we are so we can keep the context here. This letter was written to Timothy for a reason. And that reason was, was the body of believers in Ephesus were struggling. And this is good for us because us as a body of believers, we need to grow theologically in our understanding of the church. We need to know what the church is for, what the church is to do. And this is a perfect teaching opportunity for us. As, as, as Paul tells Timothy, the reason why he wrote the letter, he says in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He wrote this to Timothy so that Timothy would be clear about what the church is supposed to do and how people are supposed to, to work together in the church. The truth is that the church belongs to God, and as such, it exists for His purposes. And that means the church is to be what He, what he calls it to be, and it's to do what God calls it to do. And we, as the body of Christ, need to know all that we can about God's church because we are all part of that church. We are His family, and we all individually have a part to play in this. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, if you are in Christ, you have been called into the ministry. And what we understand is this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a younger pastor named Timothy, and again, Timothy was left in Ephesus to deal with several issues that had popped up in that church. Paul had planted the church years before, and then he warned them at one point that they could become distracted and go wayward. And that's exactly what happened. The church actually fell into very grave theological error, especially legalism. And, and Paul authorizes Timothy to go into this church and to confront the false teachers inside that were spreading these errors and forced them to stop teaching these false doctrines. And Paul said, you know, he said, I, you know, that you were to charge them or command them to stop. Now, what we understand is the church in Ephesus, what they did was they, were, they had put into place unqualified leaders or elders and pastors. You know, unqualified people had 
basically got into leadership. And as a result, they began to teach a number of false doctrines that were leading the church astray. And this false teaching then was leading to a number of behavioral issues, some really bad behavioral issues as, you know, inside and outside the church. And, and that is essentially where we left off last week. Paul tells Timothy to command these false teachers to stop teaching. And he tells Timothy that these men, they're not teaching the truth because they've abandoned a sincere love of God. That's the reason why. They don't really love God, and they don't really love God's people. In fact, he says, certain persons, by swerving from these, which is a, a love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, he said, right, these people have wandered away into vain dis in discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul says their desire to be in leadership isn't about loving God or loving God's people, but rather their desire is to be famous and influential. And I'm going to tell you, that's something we ought to rebuke in our country. One of the things that has made our country sick is our love for celebrities in every era, like whether it's movie celebrities, athlete celebrities, and, and celebrity pastors. Right? There's too much of that, too much love of influence. And that's what these men, they wanted the influence and the clout and the recognition. They were in it for the money. But Paul says, not only do they have the wrong motives, they don't even know what they're talking about, which is worse. They are theologically unqualified to be teaching. They want to be teachers of God's law, but they don't know what God's law is. And, that certainly, and they, they certainly don't know what the law of God is actually for. And even though that they are confident about the statements that they're making, right, they don't understand the purpose of the law, which then leads Paul to talk about the law and its purpose. And by the way, I want you to know, if you think I get sidetracked, just read Paul here, right? Because actually, this section and the one after are like two digressions, and then he gets back on his point a little bit later, right? But this is actually by God's, by God's sovereign spirit to, uh, to get him here. And Paul begins to tell us or help us to work through the purpose of the law. And so we're going to begin right here in verse 8. Paul says, Now we know that the law is good. I'm going to tell you, I've read that statement probably a hundred times or more. And there's so many times I kind of read through that to get to the next section, but I forgot to slow down at some time and realize there's a lot being communicated here. There's a lot in this statement here theologically for us to unpack here. In, this, in the, these few words here. The first thing I want you to see is Paul says is the expression, now we know. In English, it might not seem important to us. Okay, we know something, right? But in, but in Greek, there's huge implications behind the words that he used here because the word for knowing here at its root is not just knowing, but knowing because you see something. It's, you know, when somebody says, I know, or, or how about when they say, well, okay, I see, right? It's the same kind of, kind of, kind of an expression. More specifically, the idea being conveyed is that you know something because you see it, because it's apparent. You know something because it's evident in the world. This is not simply knowing the fact, it's knowing by experience. And what Paul is saying is we know that the law is good because we have seen that the law is good. We know that the law is good because it's evidence that the law is good. We have experienced that it's good. We know firsthand that it's good. And what we know, without doubt, what we know, without a doubt, is the fact that it is indeed 
good. Which brings the second thing to think about. I want you to hear this statement. I want you to hear what he's saying here. He said, the law is good. The law of God is good. How, when's the last time you heard anybody say something like that? I, I, mean, I mean, seriously. When's the last time you ever heard anybody say, the law of God is good? I mean, we hear God is good. The gospel is good. But when have you heard that the law of God is good? And I promise you, if you survey, if you just skim the preaching that's available online in many pulpits in Christianity, you're simply not going to ever hear those words that the law is good. I mean, you will even hardly hear people talk about the law at all, much less say that it's good. In fact, so many in the, so many of the evangelicals in our churches today simply won't see the law as good. They don't even think of it as good. I mean, they'll see it as useful. They'll see it as part of Scripture. They'll see it as something that points to Christ. But people don't see it as objectively good. And they certainly don't, you know. I mean, when's the, again, when's the last time you heard somebody say, the law of God is good? Right? But right here in Black and white, on the page, Paul wrote down, the law is good. What does Paul even mean by that? Well, the first thing we need to define by that is, what is the law? Right? What is the law so that we can actually determine, is it good or is it not good? Because really, what is the law that Paul is talking about? And that, by the I want you to know, this right here, that's a confusing question for a lot of people. It was confusing for me for many, many years. Because when you, when you read about the law in the New Testament, sometimes it's referring to the whole Old Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament is referred to as the law and the prophets. And we know that the first five books of the, of the New Old Testament are, are called the books of the what? The law. The law of Moses. We know that Leviticus is the law, if you can get all the way through that, right? And we know that Deuteronomy is a repetition of that law. Right? And we know that there are some laws that apply to the nation of Israel, and there are some laws that, that, don't, don't, that apply to everyone else. And we know that when we talk to people, oftentimes we get into conversations with people about the Old Testament law, they start getting us tripped up because it's hard to make distinctions between what's the law for them back then and what's the law that was appropriate for us today, especially when you read through like Leviticus and there's not a clear distinction or a chapter break for us to say, well, that's that section or this section. I mean, Deuteronomy 22 is a pretty good example where one minute, you know, Moses is talking about, you know, not wearing mixed fabrics and the next moment he's talking about sexual immorality, right? How do we make that distinction? Which is, which is what part of the law? What part of the law is good? Which part of the law is Paul referring to when he says that it's good? So what, so what is the law that Paul is talking about? Well, the truth is until we figure that out, until we actually understand what Paul's referring to, everything else he says is going to be irrelevant for us because we're going to be building on a, on a shaky foundation and nothing else is going to make sense. So the thing that we need to understand as Christians is what's the distinction he's making here. And the first place we have to come to, the first thing we have to just get clear in our heads is the fact that the Old Testament... 
The entire Old Testament is God's law. All of it. And all of it is good. All of it. And all of it has a purpose. And we as Christians should grow in our understanding of all of it. I've heard, I've heard pastors say, don't even worry about the Old Testament. You don't need to know that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You don't need to know it to be saved. But if you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, you've got to know it. Even as Gentiles, it doesn't apply. Some of it doesn't apply to us directly, but it's still profitable for us to study it and know it because there are principles that we need to grow from. So yes, we need to read Leviticus. I want you to hear me. You need to read Leviticus. Okay, And that means you also need to read Deuteronomy. And yes, you need to read Numbers too. Okay, Grind it out. Okay, it's, it's also important. It's all important. It's all good. It's all God's law and it, because it reflects His holy character. But the truth is, there's something more specific we need to understand. And that's the truth that we, we're not Jews. And that means some of that law of Moses is not expressly written directly for us. Much of what is written in the Old Testament was for the nation of Israel and has never been intended for Christians to legally have to live by. And much of this Old Testament law has been done away with because of Christ. In fact, one of the most important things for you and I to understand is as Christians is the fact that we, as, as Protestant Christians, recognize three categories of Old Testament law. Okay. This is the part of the message here that'll probably be the most informative for you, okay? The, the, the Old Testament law breaks into three fundamental categories, right? right. In fact, if you wrap your head around this under, and understand that, you will have a much greater appreciation for how the Old Testament will apply to you, and so much more of it will make sense to you. Okay, So there are three categories of Old Testament law. You have the moral law, you have the ceremonial law, and you have civil law. Now just briefly, let me summarize them for you. Moral law is the part of the law that, that governs morality. Right actions and attitudes towards God and towards mankind. These laws are universal. They're for everyone. They don't change over time. Which means, right? Which means they apply today with the same force they did 2,000 years ago. The law that prohibits murder, the law is a moral law, right? The law that prohibits sexual immorality is a moral law. Then what we have next is the ceremonial law. This is where a lot of people get tripped up, okay? The ceremonial law are the laws that govern uh, the worship of God before Christ. These are the laws that governed how God's people were to live holy before, before Him, before Christ. These are the rules that govern the temple. These are laws about the sacrifices. You know, when you read all those sacrifices and, and goodwill and free will and all those sacrifices, that's all ceremonial law. Then you have civil law. This is where, again, another area where people can get tripped up. These are the laws that governed the affairs of the nation of Israel. This is the law where people were, who were citizens of the nation, they had to obey, right? Like not wearing garments made of two different fabrics. That was for them and them alone, not the rest of the world, right? Or the Israelites not lending money interest to other Israelites. That was a law that governed that nation. These were civil laws for the nation of Israel. 
So again, there's moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law. And understanding the distinctions between these three is really essential for our understanding of the law and how it works and how it is to be applied in the Christian context. And the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith that the elders of this church um, will teach from is really a helpful resource in this. And I actually included um, this particular uh, chapter in your notes. And uh, if you want to follow along, you're welcome to do that. In paragraph one, we read, God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written in his heart and a specific precept not to eat to, not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. What you need to realize is from the beginning, there was a law. From the beginning, there was a law, a moral law. And Adam knew the law intrinsically, and it was expressed in the command to not eat on the, of the, the forbidden tree. By these, then it goes on to say, God obligated him and all his descendants to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. And so from the beginning, the standard for all human righteousness is perfect obedience to God's law. Right? I want you to hear that, understand that. The standard for human righteousness before Christ was perfect obedience to God. Not, I did pretty good. Perfect obedience to God. This is the standard, and it always has been from the very beginning. God, it goes on to say, promised life to Adam. Promised life if Adam fulfilled it and threatened death if he broke it and gave Adam the power and ability to keep it. The law was, I want you to hear this, the law was present in the beginning of creation before the fall. What does that mean? The law was including in, in all those things that God said is, was good and perfect. Does that, does that make sense? So the law is not something that was added on after the fall. It was before the fall. Right? It's like work. Sometimes we think work is a product of the fall. We've got to go to work because we fell in Adam. No. Work was present before the fall. That means work is good. So I want you to understand the law existed prior to the fall, and God said everything was good. And so the law was good from the beginning. This right here, by the way, is the foundation of the moral law. Look at uh, paragraph two. It says, The same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be the perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. Right? The moral law, which is the perfect rule of righteousness, has been written on the human heart from the beginning. Everyone, everyone knows what is right and wrong. Why? Because it's written on your heart, which means intrinsically everybody knows. Everyone does. This is why people push back on the idea of God, by the way. I don't know if you realize it. This is why people push back on the biblical God, especially because their love of sin right, is trying to disguise the fact that they already know what they're doing is morally wrong. This is why discussions of, of things like abortion and transgenderism in our culture are so fiery because everybody knows what right and wrong is, but the sin is so great, they want to defend it. So the only way they can do that is to push back against God Himself. Nobody wants to be reminded of their sin, but it's already written all over our hearts. It, the moral law, was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and was written on two tablets. 
The first four commandments contain our duty to God, and the other six, our duty to humanity. What we need to realize is the Ten Commandments is really a summary of the moral law of God. So when we, that's why, by the way, that we've always held to the Ten Commandments. Why Christians still look to the Ten Commandments? Because it's not, it's, it's, it's not anything else but a, a summary of the, the moral commandments that God has given to all of humanity. And it's still relevant today. And then paragraph 3, it goes on and says, In addition to this law, this is where we're going to see some distinctions. In addition to this law, usually called the moral law, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typological ordinances. In some ways, these concerned worship by prefiguring Christ, His graces, actions, suffering, and benefits. Right? What he's saying, what, the, what, the, what our confession says, is that these, these laws prefigured Christ, the temple and the blood sacrifice Right? And intercessory work of priests all pointed forward to the redemptive work that Christ did on the cross. In other words, in, in other ways it says, in, in, in other ways they revealed various instructions about moral duties. And it continues and says, since all these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the new order arrived with the resurrection of Christ, they are now abolished and taken away by Jesus as the true Messiah and the only lawgiver. He was empowered by the Father to do this. What we need to realize is then we look back on these ceremonial laws and realize that they are not for us anymore. They've been set aside. Like That's why we don't build temples and slaughter sheep. Right? Those are done. It's over. That old way of worship no longer applies anymore. So we look back and we see that and we go, okay, that doesn't apply to us. That's easy for us to make that distinction now. Then he goes on, it goes on to say, to Israel, he also gave various judicial laws, which we call civil laws, which ceased to be the same, ceased at the same time the nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as a part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. What that's What that's telling is the nation of Israel fell apart in the first century and the law that governed that nation ended. And these laws no longer have relevance for anyone. So when people want to argue with you, well, you say this about this, but then what about, you know, you eat shellfish? (laughs) That doesn't apply anymore. By the way, praise the Lord for that, right? I mean, praise the Lord for bacon, right? All right. The only value that these have now are moral principles that we can learn from because because no one's obligated to obey those laws anymore. And so what we see is the ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ. The civil law that governed Israel had come to an end. And what are we left with? Right? What's relevant for us is the moral law. And our confession then actually gets right to the point and says the moral law forever, look at that word, forever requires obedience of who? Everyone. Both those who are just as well as others. The moral law is for all people at all times. That includes believers and non-believers. It includes Jews and Gentiles. This obligation arises not only because of its content, but because of the authority of God, the Creator who gave it. That's the reason why it's authoritative. It's because it's God's law. Nor does Christ in any way, and I want you to see this, this is such an important thing for us as Christians to to grasp. It says, nor does 
Christ in any way dissolves this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he greatly strengthens it. Okay, I want you to kind of like let that settle in for a minute because I think when we want to just do what we want to do, right, and pretend like certain things don't apply to us anymore because we're Christians, right, we need to be reminded of the fact that Christ in the gospel does not dissolve our obligation to the moral law. Instead, he strengthens that obligation. The moral law still applies to us. So to quickly review one one more time, there is a civil law that governed Israel as a nation that doesn't apply because that nation has ended. So the law like lending interest or how to treat slaves in that context have no bearing on us except maybe the principles that would guide our lives, like not taking advantage of people. right? And then the ceremonial law that governed worship and setting God's people apart, all that's been fulfilled in Christ, except maybe the principles that we would gather from worship, like, like reverence and respect for a holy and righteous God. But then you have the moral law. This is a law for all people at all time. It is a clear picture of God's righteous requirements, and it's a, and it's a reflection of His holiness, and it is the obligation of all people because that law has been written on all of their hearts. And this law is reflected again in the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, is something we're going to spend more time talking about next week because I want you to notice when you look at that list of things that Paul wrote down, the list of sins, it corresponds exactly with the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments is a summarized version of the moral law. And I want you to understand the greatest commandment to love God and love other people. That's an even more concise summary of the law. And so the thing that we need to keep in view here is God's moral law. And the moral law is the backbone of what Paul's talking about when he says the law is good. But let's go a little bit deeper now. Because it's one thing for you and I to say the law is good and agree with that. But the word good here that we use in English is translated from a Greek word that doesn't just mean good, it means beautiful. It means honorable, noble, glorious. Paul's not just saying that the law is good in some moral way. He's saying that the law is beautiful. Now, when you think of the law being good, do you think, wow, it's beautiful. The law of God is glorious. I I would say most people don't even think in those terms. Even if they came across the line and said, yeah, the law is good, I don't think that they just would instinctively say, but it's beautiful too. In fact, this word more specifically means attractively good, good that inspires, motivates others to embrace what is lovely, beautiful, and praiseworthy. Is is that how we think of God's law? Do we think the law of God is praiseworthy? Does, Does its beauty inspire us to embrace it and to love it? I mean, it ought to. Romans chapter 7, verse 12, Paul says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then David says this in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I love your law. I'm going to be honest with you, brothers and sisters. A big part of my Christian life, I've never really thought about loving God's law. He says, I love your law. 
Does the beauty and the goodness of God's law inspire you to love it? In fact, I want you to hear what David says in Psalm 19. He says, he says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Whoa, the law, the moral law, the law of God revives the soul. I'm going to tell you, like there's been parts of my life I've never put those two together. The testimony, again, talking about the law of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Do you, when's the last time you rejoiced in the law? The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true the right, and righteous altogether. And then he says in verse 10, more to be desired than they are, I mean, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. The law of God is more valuable than gold. And he says it's even sweeter than honey and dripping from the honeycomb. And he says, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Brothers and sisters, I think that all of us as Christians need to grow in a new love and a reverence for the word, I mean, for the, for the law of God. Not just his word, but the law. You hear the passion that David has for the law. That law of God is indeed good and beautiful, and we ought to think it praiseworthy, and we ought to love it because, because God loves it. As William Secker said, the law by which God rules us is as dear to him as the gospel by which he saves us. We ought to love God's law. But so many people don't. In fact, so many of us don't even think about it at all. Because for some reason, we've adopted this erroneous notion that the law and the gospel are two distinct things. And I want you to know when I say so many people, I'm talking about me at one point in my life. As a new Christian, I thought well, the law and the gospel are two different things. That the, the law is the Old Testament, the gospel is the New Testament. In fact, some people have gotten to the point where they believe that, that God has actually had two different programs in the plan of redemption. I've, had, I've heard preachers say that Christians are saved by, by the gospel and Jews are saved by the law. There's a very famous pastor who doesn't evangelize Jewish people. He doesn't. He says it's a waste of time. He says because he believes that God has two different plans, the law for the Jews, the gospel for the Christians. He sees them as disconnected. But I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, that's just not true. It's not disconnected. There is now and always has been only one plan of salvation, and that is the gospel. Anybody who has ever been saved throughout history has been saved by the same thing. Grace through faith alone in Christ or the Messiah. So there's not two programs, but one. And the law and the gospel are not two separate things, but one. They are two parts of the same whole. In fact, notice in our text here, it says, in the very beginning, it says, the law is good. But near the end, he says this expression, in accordance with the gospel. He says, the law is good in accordance with the gospel. He said, the, the law accords with the gospel. The law is related intimately with the gospel. He said, what many people have forgotten is the truth that the law and the gospel are indelibly linked together. They are one and they both served the same end. And that end is redemption. 
They both work together to bring glory to God by redeeming his people, which means you can't have the gospel without the law. And the law is pointless without the gospel because there's no hope. In fact, you need both the law and the gospel to bring healing to a sinner. In fact, in an article from Concordia, they said this, Martin Luther recognized that the word of God brings a different kind of healing through the law and the gospel. The law describes what God requires. It, it demands perfection, a standard we cannot meet. The gospel describes what God provides so that we may live. The law is like a surgeon's knife, cutting the sin that corrupts our lives and brings death. The gospel is healing. It's the most profound healing since it's eternal, it's eternal and heals in every way. You see, no one will take the medicine unless they actually understand the diagnosis. No one comes to Christ until they understand their trouble with the law. The law and the gospel are inseparable. You cannot have the gospel without the law. The law is beautiful and good and praiseworthy because it gives you the foundation on which to grab hold of the gospel. And so Paul is right. The gospel, I mean, the law is good. It is good. But then notice he adds the caveat, though. The law is good if one uses it lawfully or rightly. <laughs> well, now it took all that time just to figure out what it means to, what the law is. What do you mean, use it lawfully? You see, we've actually reached the heart of the problem that many Christians and many churches have, right? Once we understand what the law is, and once we understand the divisions of the law, moral, civil, and ceremonial, and once we understand what parts of the law that are re relevant to Christians and all people at all times, many of us still don't understand how to take that law and use it rightly. We misuse it. That's why we end up with the errors of legalism and antinomianism. Because people, we don't know how to use the law properly. One group says, hey, you got to follow the rules and do all this stuff and make sure that you're always on top of it lest you lose your salvation. And other people over here are saying, hey, that has nothing to do with us. I don't have to worry about that. You just keep doing you. Just, just remember that you just made a profession of faith at one point in your life. Many people who call themselves Christians don't understand what the law is for and how it is to be used. So then how do we use the law rightly? How do we use it lawfully? Well, the question that's actually going to take us into next week. We're going, to have to, we're going to take most of our time next week working through how to use the law rightly because there's a lot for us to talk about and a lot to unpack still. And, and the truth is how we answer that question of using the law, the law rightly is going to come down to understanding the purpose of the law. And so this morning, I want to wrap up really quickly by telling you what the purpose of the law is. There's actually four that I've been able to see. Some condense them down into three, but I think four makes a little more sense as we unpack them really quick. The first purpose of the law is to re reveal to mankind the character of God. That's the point. It's the first purpose. The law helps us to see the truth about the law giver. God is holy. God is righteous and just and perfect. Remember, it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. He's talking about the law there. Why does he say the glory of God? 
because the law is rooted in God's glory. It reveals His character. You see, the law is glorious because God is glorious. The law is beautiful because God is beautiful. The law is, is good because God is good. The law is given to mankind to help us see the character of God. Secondly, the law restrains sin and evil. That is why cultures in all societies have the same core set of morals in every culture. You know, you know that, right? I mean, everywhere you go, people, in fact, that's one of the things that people say about religions. Well, all religions teach the basically the same things. And all societies teach the basically same moral principles. Yes, that's right, because it's God's law written on their hearts. That's why cultures all basically universally agree that murder, rape, theft, bearing false witness, all are evil and should be punished. And as such, these governments set up laws that, that deal with those things because they reflect God's law. And the net result is evil is restrained. Now, we know not completely, right? But people, because people still do evil. But the fact is, if we didn't have laws and law enforcement people, there'd be more people doing more of that stuff. In fact, that's what we're seeing in our country right now as they decide we're not enforcing those kind of laws. We're not going to punish those people or burning down their own cities. What's happening? You get more of the same. Evil is emboldened when the law of God is, is done away with. And so God's law has a restraining effect on the world. That's the second purpose. The third purpose of the law is the truth that it is a mirror to help us to see who we really are. R.C. Sproul once wrote, The law reveals the character of God, and that's valuable to any believer at any time. But as the law reveals the character of God, it provides a mirror to reflect for us our unholiness against the ultimate standard of righteousness. In that regard, the law serves as a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. The law of God is a holy standard with which we examine ourselves. When we look at the mirror, we see how we are desperately lacking. We see that we have failed to attain we fail to attain the obedience that God demands, the perfect obedience. We see that we are broken sinners who cannot save ourselves. The law gives us the diagnosis of what the real problem is, which then helps us to see our need for the cure. The law is good because in seeing our reflection, we are driven to the foot of, of the cross and we're driven to Christ. The law helps us to see that there is only one hope, and that is for God Himself to rescue us. It is, it is from, from that foundation of the law that we're able to grab hold of the gospel of grace. Because the law really is the bad news about our condition that makes the good news relevant to us. The law tells us that God created us for a relationship with Him, and because of our sin... Not only are we separated from Him, we are in rebellion against Him. And as such, His wrath and His judgment are rightfully hanging over our heads. And if we die in our sins, we will receive the just penalty for our sin, which is an eternity in hell. And there's nothing you can do on your own to fix it or change it. You cannot be a good enough person because as we have established very clearly, the standard was perfect obedience. And you failed that long before you can even remember. But then the good news that Christ came into the world 
And what did he do? He obeyed the law perfectly. He fulfilled the covenant of works that Adam failed to fulfill. He kept the moral law given through Moses, all of that law. And by doing that, he secured for those who have faith in him perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness under the law. Not that we could ever be perfect, but that we would be credited with that perfection. That his perfection would be granted to us by faith. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 makes clear, for our sake he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Christ's righteousness is given to us as a gift and our sins are credited to Him on the cross where He made atonement for our sin. Not only did Christ keep the law on our behalf, but He also satisfies the demands of the law by making payment for us through His own blood. And what's required for us to avail that? What's required for us to, to, to get that? Repentance and faith. That's our part. Jesus said, the time is now, the kingdom is, is here. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, the law is the mirror that helps us to see our need, that we need to repent of our self-righteousness and believe in the gospel and be given the righteous standing we need to be before God. The perfection of God's beautiful, holy law. The fourth purpose is that it reveals what is pleasing to God. Our confession continues. And I'm going to tell you, this: our confession of faith, the 1689, really does a great job unpacking this. In, in uh, paragraph 6, it says, True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works. So yes, we're not under the law as if we're working our way to be justified by God. We're not under the law by, as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. Yet, it is very useful to them and others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and, and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It exposes the sinful corruption of their natures, hearts, and lives as they examine themselves in the light of the law, and they come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin, along with a clear view of their need for Christ and the perfection of His obedience. You see, the law continues, even after we're saved, to continue to push us more and more to Christ. It reminds us of our continual need to stay close to Him, to continue to repent and believe in the gospel. In fact, Jesus' words, when he said, repent and believe the gospel, those words are continuous action. What he was saying literally is this. The time is now, the kingdom of, of heaven is near. Be repenting and believing the gospel. The law continues to remind us, you're not there yet. You still need Jesus. The law reminds you that you still need God's grace, lest you become puffed up. It further says the law is useful to, to the regenerate to restrain their corruption because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law shows them whatever that what even their sin deserves and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they're freed from the curse and the undiminished severity of the law. In other words, you fall into sin, 
you're not going to lose your salvation, but you could still suffer the consequences in this life. And we have seen that in our brothers and sisters who have made shipwrecks of their marriages and even their health by their sinful lifestyles, only for God to bring them back later on, but then they, but they, they lost huge opportunities to live the life that God had for them to live. The promises of the law are likewise shown to them through God's approval and obedience, and the blessings may, they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them as a covenant of works. If people do good and refrain from evil because of the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate that they are under the law or under grace. In other words, there is also great blessing for those who follow God's law, who walk in holiness, right? And then it says, wrapping up with this, the uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but are in sweet harmony with it. For the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the human will to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God as revealed in the law requires. I'm, I'm gonna, I just want to come back to that, okay? For the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the human will to do freely to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God as revealed in the law requires. In other words, as you continue to abide in Christ, the Holy Spirit continues to work in you, freeing you more and more from the power of sin so that you freely choose to be obedient. See, we don't, we don't obey to be saved. We obey because we already are saved. We don't obey to become approved. We obey because we already are approved. We have been freed to become obedient. Does that make sense? We're not slaves of the law. We're freed to be obedient to the law now. You see, the law is good because it reflects God's character. It restrains evil. It acts as a mirror to show us who we really are. And it helps to sanctify believers as we're confronted more and more of our need for Christ. And so with that, I think we all can agree with Paul and say, indeed, indeed, the law is good. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.